what ended up happening was one disaster after another, whether it was corruption locally, whether it was landowners fighting you, whether it was the inability to mobilize because you're being held ransom by locals. And ultimately that sort of six or $8 million was spent and a well was never drilled. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To reduce risk in your life, go to myworstinvestmentever.com today and take the risk reduction assessment I created from the lessons I've learned from more than five hundred guests. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from AE Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Anthony Maluski. Anthony, are you ready to join the mission? I'm ready. Thanks a lot for having me today, Andrew. Well, I appreciate having you. In fact, I'm really interested in what you're doing. So let me introduce you to the audience. Anthony is an investing veteran and chairman of Nickel 28, a battery metals-focused investment company with a focus on metal streaming and royalty agreements. The company trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Anthony has been active in the battery metals industry, including investing in cobalt and actively trading physical cobalt. I'm picturing you, Anthony, lifting up cobalt, which I think would be dangerous. Previously, he was a member of the investment team at Pala Investments Limited, a leading venture capital firm. Anthony, take a minute and tell us about the value you bring to this wonderful world. Yeah, you know, I spend my life investing in commodities, and that ranges from, as, as you said, nickel. You know, we're the largest producer of MHP in the world. It's the type of nickel that goes into batteries. But not just that, you know, we, we really seek to think about what the future is going to look like, get ahead of that trend, and invest in those trends. You know, over the years, that's included things like copper, cobalt, carbon credits. You know, it's, it's one thing to just go along and, and you know, express some sort of a, an investment thesis. I think it's quite another to, to try to predict where the market's going and what the future is going to look like. And that's where you can really make outsized returns if you're right on your bets. And so what your focus now is nickel only? No, I mean, what, what I'm really focused on is this global energy transition. And it encompasses almost everything and every every company that we're a part of. You know, if it's a retail company, you know, maybe it has to do with carbon offsets and the way that people can think about sustainability. If it's a different type of company, like say electric vehicle company, you have to ask yourself, where are they going to get the nickel? Where are they going to get the copper? Where are they going to get the lithium for the batteries or the aluminum for the, the chassis of the car? And so, you know, as we transition into a time when there's much more focus on sustainability and transitioning away from a hydrocarbon-based kind of world, you know, we need to think about the mining, the, the metals, and the different commodities that, that help and assist with that transition. That transition is well underway. And, you know, and I would challenge your listeners, because I'm sure that there's a wide diversity of listeners here, is look around the room that you're in right now. And, and really everything you see is either mined or grown at its most basic core. And so when you're thinking about these new ideas, whether it's AI, well, that's powered by computer systems. Those computers have microchips. Those microchips have basic materials in them. So no matter, no matter what you do in this world, if you want to live a modern life, 
you really need exposure to these, these different minerals and these different commodities. And you know what we do is think about where the world is going and what commodities are going to be consumed as we transition into this different future. It's interesting because, you know, if you go back in time, the commodities were forests, you know, to make wood, to make houses, or, you know, the simple things like stones, you know, and rocks to make cement and to make buildings and then steel to make buildings. And in Thailand here, we build a lot of buildings with cement. And, you know, you think about when we think about those types of like materials, we oftentimes think about these old style things and we forget about the fact that in order to transition to where we're supposed to be going, it's taking some very unique, you know, levels of these types of metals that, you know, in some cases, the mining of these metals also has, you know, issues too. And it's just like, there's so many things. Uh, yeah, profound, profound impact. And like, I mean, I would tell you copper by way of example, it, you know, is absolutely critical in this transition because electricity power is transmitted through copper. And that could be as simple as, you know, different types of transmission lines, but that also is inside of your phone and inside of your computers. And as we become a more technologically based society globally, we're going to consume more and more of potentially different types of minerals and different types of metals and elements. And, you know, forests, they're not like the use of, of wood is not going away. It's just that, you know, certain types of, you know, scandium would be an example. No one's heard of scandium. Well, that, that's used to alloy aluminum. And, and while it's kind of irrelevant today, in a decade, it's going to be very relevant. And so, you know, I think when you're investing, especially if you have a time horizon that's beyond the next six months, which I don't think a lot of investors do today, unfortunately, but if you do have that longer time horizon and are prepared to take a view, you know, you can really enter into certain types of situations at a very low cost basis. Now, that mm. also implies a greater risk too. I mean, if you if you're in there early and you know something changes, you know, greater reward, there's sort of greater risk. And when somebody's investing in your company, they're investing in a a holding company, an investment company, an operating company. Well, How does it work? I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm invested in a bunch of different things. That you know, Nickel Twenty Eight, I'm the chairman of. And when you buy that equity, it trades on the Toronto Venture Exchange. What you're really getting is our interest, roughly a 10% interest in the Ramu mine, which is, as I said, the largest producer of MHP. It's a type of nickel in the world. It's operated by our partner, MCC. And so that's really the value mm. in that particular company is our operating partnership in a nickel mine. And, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, there's been sort of some debacle in nickel lately, which is a whole separate podcast. But if you look at the ability to invest in nickel, it's pretty limited for your average investor, simply because a lot of nickel mines in the world are buried inside of much larger companies. And so when you're buying that company's equity, you're really getting exposure to you know 10 different mines, like in Valet or something like that. And so there aren't too many opportunities to invest in a producer. There are plenty of opportunities to invest in an exploration company or a development company. It's a really different risk profile. And so I think it's uniquely positioned in particular in the TSX, where I think the only peer would be a company called Sherit, but their mine is in Cuba and U.S. investors can't, can't really buy that equity, or at least institutional investors don't buy that equity because of the Cuban exposure. And we did have a guest on the show before, E.B. Tucker, and he... Yeah. The reason why I'm thinking about that is because you mentioned in your bio about 
metal streaming and royalty agreements. Can you just explain what that is? Because some people, when they think that they're investing in something, they may think, oh, he's got a warehouse full of nickel or he's got a yeah. mine, but there's other ways to invest in it. Yeah, no, there's lots of, I mean, so first of all, our, our nickel participation is really a joint venture. So we are owners of the operating company, but streamers and royalties, you know, it's it's kind of a unique way of investing. So a royalty is, and there's a bunch of different types, but in its simplest form, you get a percentage of the revenue. And that might be before cost or after costs. And, you know, in Canada, that, that royalty sits on the title of, of the underlying mineral agreement. And, you know, you don't have exposure to CapEx. Now, you ultimately have exposure to CapEx because if something happens and the mine stop operate, stops operating, you don't get paid. Mm. But I think in particular in the gold space, it's perceived as being a safer way to invest because you know you don't have a company that's going to be continuously issuing equity to fund a gold project that's going to come in two times over budget and three times longer than it should. So you still have the risk that that mine never gets built or doesn't operate, but you don't necessarily, I'm talking about a royalty, you don't carry the, the CapEx risk associated with an equity where you're building a mine. And so I think that's why these companies like Franco Nevada and Wheaton Precious have become so popular is because it's a diversified, it's a diversified way of investing in streams and royalties. Now, a stream is a little bit different because oftentimes in a stream, you actually have the ability to take the physical metal. Hmm. And so, you know, it's in, in its simplest, most basic form, if you wanted to think about it almost as a prepayment, and that's not completely accurate, but you know, oh, I'm paying you today for future delivery of this metal. And potentially I'm paying you at a fixed price. And if, if the price goes up, then you know I get the benefit of that differential over where we made the agreement. So they're two separate agreements. And I think in particular, the stream has the benefit a lot of times of being able to take the physical. And that's particularly interesting for base metals. And you know, not, not as much for gold because gold, frankly, is so liquid that people just they don't take possession of the gold by and large. Mm. But for other types of, of metals where you actually might want the physical for some purpose. In fact, you know, you've seen trading houses do these types of agreements so that they have the optionality around the physical. So I think that's a very simplistic way of thinking about the two of them. But from the perspective of an investor, it's really a way of thinking about risk when you're investing in a sector. Mm. And I would say by a wide margin, it's most developed for precious metals, right? Gold right. and silver, with PGMs. There are, you know, Altius is an example of a base metal royalty company, but it's it's just a fraction of the size of Franco Nevada or, or Wheat Precious. So if we talk about, you know, just to explain it to the audience, some people may not totally understand it. I'm going to try to describe it and you correct me if I'm wrong. But so the first thing that you said, it made me think about, you know, if you got invested into some sort of, let's say, a nickel mine, as an example, you're into a very heavy capex type of business that could go over budget, need more money. And if you're owning 5% of that particular company or 10% of that particular company, they're going to come to you and go, we need more money. And if you don't have it, you're going to get diluted down. So ultimately, you're, you're going to probably want to have to put up. So for the people that invest in that, they, they want to deploy a large amount of capital that then is used for the CapEx that's used to actually execute the mine. But when it comes to royalty, what we're talking about is taking a small percentage of 
the revenue or the, the output of that mine. And my question, so my first thing is, did I explain that right? So if you're taking yeah, a, yeah, a percentage yeah, yeah. of the output. That's, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty fair characterization. I, I would also note the thing. Your description is really every junior mining company on earth and an oil and gas company, right? Oh, we've got a project that's two billion yeah. of capex. We have a hundred million dollar market. I mean, that's really your description is exactly that. Now, typically, what happens is a royalty is sold by management team earlier in the project. So, you know, it's the feasibility stage, pre-feasibility stage, you know. Or even maybe they're building the mine and, and they need to think about cost of capital and how they can raise that mine with minimizing dilution to whoever the shareholders are on the equity side. And so oftentimes, you know, that royalty is sold at a risky stage. You know, it's pretty rare to have a, a new royalty written on a producing mine. That's a pretty rare thing. And, and in mm. what you have is a royalty is being sold early on. I'll give you an example. In our company, we own a royalty in Dumont. So Dumont is a shovel-ready project in Canada, a nickel mine, right? Right. It has a $2 billion capex. So, you know, one and a half billion, whatever the numbers, I don't know. But what I would say is it doesn't matter. Either it gets built or it doesn't get built from our perspective. It's a binary outcome. So we don't, we're not exposed to that dilution at Dumont, right? Right. So if you were an equity shareholder, and it's a private company, but if you were an equity shareholder in Dumont, then you'd have to figure out like, how, okay, how do we raise money and not get diluted? And so it's really just, you know, a different way of looking at it. But if Dumont is never built, then the value of that royalty is really just an option. So it trades as an option. Now, mm -hmm. what happens with these royalties is through time, it, and I'm just using Dumont as an example, if Dumont goes into production, then you know the value of that royalty becomes what is the cash flow? What do we think the price of nickel is? You know, a, a discounted cash flow model over 10 years. And so you have a royalty today that it has a value, an option value on that mine being built. But over time, that transitions into some sort of a, an NAV-based model, you know, this kind of cash flow model as it comes into production. And so, right. you know, I think, I think that these royalty companies, what they're doing, and, and I'm speaking more specifically to the precious metals, is, you know, from their perspective, with the royalty, they're hopefully buying these royalties as options. And then through time, they trade not as an option, but then as an actual function of cash flow. I mean, that's a simplified way of thinking about it. And um, what you said was that it typically happens in the beginning of the investment phase for the, the mining company, let's say, when they've got, they're getting their initial funding. But when I think about the word royalty, I'm thinking that that's coming on revenue when they don't have the revenue there. But I guess what you mean is that you as an investor are going to estimate your present value of all of those future cash flows and say, this royalty is worth 10 million bucks to us. And therefore, we're going to pay up front that amount, knowing that we're going to get, we're going to have a binary outcome. But if it works, we're going to get, you know, a big payout of consistent cash flows relative to the revenue that comes out. Yeah, the, order, the order of magnitude would be if it's 10 million, then you would hope it might be worth a couple hundred million if it, if it pays out. Right. And, you know, if I would be willing to bet if you could like look inside of the books of Franco and Wheaton, they have scores, maybe even hundreds of these things on projects that might not be built for a hundred years. Yeah. Right? And that's why, by the way, they, I think a lot of these companies have transitioned into doing large streaming deals. Mm. A lot of the most interesting streaming deals are, are done as part of the capital structure 
when they're raising the financing to actually put it into construction. So it's a much later and a much different risk profile, you know, because mm-hmm. when you're, when you're going to raise a billion dollars of CapEx, a lot of times you have to hedge out or forward sell that production in a take or pay contract such that they can lock in debt financing. Right. So, you know, in terms of modern mining finance, a stream, it's almost standard now on, on newly constructed mines that are being constructed outside of say Rio Tinto or, mm. or one of the really big BHP or something like that. Excellent. Well, that's a great description about what you're doing. And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah. So this has been, uh, maybe it's been over a decade now. You know, you had a really interesting oil, oil and gas market at the time. And, you know, a former partner and, and friend in Australia had this idea, you know, look, there were these blocks that were coming up for auction in Indonesia, in Sumatra, and there's a lot of data on them. They had historically, you know, had historically had seismic shot over them, and it looked really interesting. I mean, there were oil seeps, and this is really a story of understanding risk. I think, from my perspective, we talked about that and why returns look the way they do, and how if it's too good to be true, it might be. And so, you know, we went out and we raised, you know, roughly. $10 million, you know, through this process, we, we ultimately were awarded a block and we thought for sure we were going to go and shoot 3D seismic and drill a couple of wells and, and become oil men. <laughs> and as it turns out, it never happened. And, you know, what ended up happening was one disaster after another, whether it was corruption locally, whether it was landowners fighting you, whether it was the inability to mobilize because you're being held ransom by locals. And ultimately that sort of six or $8 million was spent and a well was never drilled. Mm. And the reason, you know, I think the reason when I look back on this situation is it's all about understanding risk. And what I mean by that is, you know, when someone shows up with a Nigerian tin project and they're going to tell you it's a 70% IRR on paper, maybe it is, but in actual fact, there's a reason why these deals are priced the way they are. And I think it's really understanding the context of the country. And, you know, that's not just, by the way, Indonesia, in this case, or Nigeria. Mm-hmm. It could also be if you're in Nevada. And Nevada, the state of Nevada might be different than the state of Arizona. And I would say that, you know, too often when you hear a story, and then not just mining, but in oil and gas in this example, someone will come in and tell you how this country has changed. This country is different. This time is different. And the truth is, it probably hasn't changed and it probably isn't different. And if the profile that they're showing you, the return profile that they're showing you is too good to be true, you know, it's not that it's not true. In actual fact, if we had managed to drill those wells and we had hit oil, those returns would have been like mm. the projected returns. It's just that what you don't see or understand is the risk. And you don't really kind of really fully appreciate that geopolitical risk that you're taking on. And another example could be Russia. You know, like yep. think about how hard it's been to finance Russia over the last decade. You know, initially after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, Friedland had an oil deal in Kazakhstan. You know, a lot of the big names in the industry had had deals in Russia. A lot of them got blown up too. And so, you know, there was, it was a very expensive to raise money for gold deals and, and different types of deals in Russia. And it felt like it shouldn't be. 
And then mm-hmm. look at the war, look at the war in Ukraine now. And now you realize why it was, because actually the market is kind of efficient at pricing in the risk. And so in the case, on our case in Indonesia, I think we were naive to how complicated it was going to be to try to do an oil and gas deal and deal with the local landowners and not have a strong partner. And I think that's kind of universally true in not just emerging markets, but in any market. If you're seeing a presentation and that return feels kind of out of whack with peers or similar companies, even if the geologist is correct and right, or even if the metallurgist is right, I think the question you really have to understand is like, is the risk? Like, do I understand the country risk? Do I understand the politics? And by the way, that doesn't mean you shouldn't take that risk. Mm. It just means that that you really need to understand it and appreciate that you're not getting a 50% IR for a layup. Yep. You know, like, and I think that's one of the things about investing in in the commodities business is that commodities are commodities. And so, you know, the, a crew you gotta dig them out of the ground. Yeah, exactly. So the price of copper in a certain form is universal. So, so why is it that this project looks so much better? Well, it's sitting in the Congo. Like, let's face it, that's a hard place to operate. Yep. And so I think when your readers and listeners look at projects and think about projects, it's really worth kind of delving into and understanding the risk associated with that jurisdiction and accepting that they want to take on that risk and also understanding that it's not as simple as country risk. And I Mm. think the United States is an example, you know, on a state by state basis, a project is approved. So even when someone comes to the U S copper project, it could be completely different based on whether it's an Idaho or Utah or Oregon. Right. So, and the more money you're putting into the project relative to your own personal circumstance, the more important it is to really fully understand that risk because I, like what I've observed over my career and, you know, as this is one example, I can tell you there's lots of times it's gone wrong in Mongolia and different places over the years. I think getting that risk wrong is, is one of the things that can be exceptionally troubling and, and challenging for any project because the flow through is often permitting, you know, so getting that country risk wrong. It's one thing if you're getting kind of, stitched up by landowners or you know something mm. like that but oftentimes it, it translates into your ability to get permits and your ability to do business so yeah just out of curiosity how did it wrap up like how did you guys at what point did you just say well this isn't going to work anymore and we're exiting yeah i mean it took a long time because we really thought we could get through it i mean we really thought that and the company ultimately transitioned into other assets and moved on but you know and i think that's just generally you know, this idea of sunk costs is important, like economics of costs, because it's very challenging with any project. You know, you start heading down the path, you've raised money, you've committed to it, and then to change directions. Hmm. And, you know, oftentimes it's almost not possible if it's a junior mining company or junior oil and gas company, because the resources have been committed and the company only has one project. And so that can be very challenging for a management team to change direction, even though they should. Yep. And so I, I think that's another important point. So how would you, let's just go back. You've, you've gone through a lot of lessons that you learned, but how would you summarize that into a couple of key points? I think the key point is understand that when you see a return that looks like an outsized return, just ask a question, ask the question like, why? Hmm. Why is this special? Like, why, why is this time different? Why? why? Yep. 
and then identify what the why is because the why is the risk usually yep oh it's in you know it's in zimbabwe okay that's the why so now yep. then <laughs> i think once you identify the why or maybe the why can be different like oh it's an eight billion dollar capex so it's the world's greatest gold project but it's eight billion dollars like the why is like is anyone going to finance that right you know or it's coal the why is like you know, none of the endowments can own it. So I think just, you know, kind of asking, why is this outsized? Like, why is this return 100% IRR? Just, you know, whatever the nonsense is. Like, why is it? Yeah. Because that that really brings you or brings into focus what the risk is, in my opinion. So maybe I'll share a couple of things that I take away from this story. I mean, the first thing is that I've interviewed a lot of people now and I've identified six common mistakes. And the number one most common mistake is people fail to do their research. But I like to talk about research as kind of research into the return of a project. And then the second thing, uh, most common mistakes, is they failed to properly assess and manage risk. And so I like to say, you know, split your research between the research you do on the return that you're expecting and the research that you're doing on the risk that you're expecting. It helps you to kind of not get overwhelmed with the return. And so this is really a story about understanding risk. And, you know, you said something that I wrote down right when you said it, which was on paper. And we have to remember that, you know, there's all kinds of people sitting in offices making PowerPoints and Excel spreadsheets, and it's all on paper. The other thing that I thought about is, you know, there's a legal slash corruption cost. In fact, one of my first bosses here in Thailand had invested in an Indonesian company. And at some point he was doing something and he decided to go to Indonesia and look after the company for a little bit. And he ended up finding himself in jail for three years because they locked him up because the company had some tax liability that he didn't know. And then he arrived and then they grabbed him. And so he spent three years in an Indonesian jail. He wasn't planning on that particular risk. And then the other part is that, okay, once you've assessed that risk, you know, you can hire, you can, number one, you can partner with a big, big partner in Indonesia or in Thailand where I am, or you can work with a local person that can help you try to mitigate that risk, or you can get a really big name shareholder in there that's going to use their power to reduce that risk. But all of those things are also going to cost money. So again, reducing risk is, you know, is always going to, you know, reduce the return. The other thing I thought about was, yeah, I had one guy that I interviewed on the show, and he basically said, I didn't, I didn't realize I was going to be chased out of the Congo with knives, you know, like I didn't factor that into the model. So that whole environment. And then the other thing is that ultimately, when you go into these types of things, it consumes a lot of your personal energy. And you mentioned about, you know, it does consume a lot of energy. And when you're a one you know, one, uh, as you said, a one project company, if you are, that energy is do or die. Now, if this was a $10 million project for a bigger company, it's a little different. So there's a lot of things I took away from that. Is there anything you would add to that? Yeah, I think, I think especially as an investor, and, and I presume that most people here are probably investing in equities across the ASX, TSX, OTC. Yep. I think you have to ask yourself, why am I even investing? Well, why am I doing this? And you know, I, of course, I love this, and I invest in, in a lot of friends' deals. And but why are you doing it? I mean, I always benchmark this across putting your money in the S and P five hundred and reinvesting the dividends. <laughs> because, by the way, I mean, you know, how great would your return have been over the same period of time 
and let's not forget, most of these juniors are very liquid. You can only get out when people let you get out. Mm. And so I, I think I think you should, you know, there's this kind of part of human nature about gambling and this, oh, I'm going to make it rich. This is my one, you know, 100 grand is going to be 3 million or whatever, you know, and that's fine. And it, and it does happen, but I would tell you, and I've never done this empirically, but I would be willing to bet that if you took the average of any any particular, whether it's mining or cannabis or whatever, whatever the kind of sector as a whole is, you averaged out the return, you took every name, you averaged out the return, and then you went and looked at the S&P, and then you picked the same time window, like, I, I think you probably would outperform on the S&P. Hmm. So I would just, I would challenge everyone before you enter into any investment in this kind of smaller cap space to really ask yourself, why, why am I doing this? Do I need to do this? Is it prudent to do this? Should I instead just buy the S&P? And I think a lot of times the answer is pass and, and go going back <laughs> something you know something a little bit more um, that makes sense. Yeah. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take who are confronted with this type of investment? You know, what's one action that you'd recommend they take to avoid suffering the same fate? You know, I would be I would be skeptical. And I mean that in the way that I would be thoughtful is maybe a better way. Mm. I'd be thoughtful about investing in places where you don't know anything about that place. Yeah. Yep. And really feel comfortable with that management team that you really feel that they have an edge in that place. And if you don't buy something else, there's there's lots of oil names out there, lots of mining names out there. So I think it's really about, why are you doing this and making sure you understand that? Because if you don't know the place and you don't understand the place, you don't understand the risk you're taking, I think. And yeah. that's key. That's key to managing a portfolio, you know, and, and everyone has a couple of these names that they gamble on, whatever they are, but you should still always understand or to the best of your ability to try to understand the risks that you're taking, because, you know, the, it's not a binary risk. If you take your hundred thousand dollars that you've saved and you buy the S and P it's not going to zero. And if it goes yeah. to zero, the world just ended, right? <laughs> and, you know, you reinvest a dividend, you get a 5% yield on it. Like, that's that's not bad. You invest in a junior oil and gas company or a junior mining company or a junior weed company, a lot of them go to zero. And you so put it all down on seven. You know, yeah. So it's just really thinking about your risk profile and understanding it. And I, I oftentimes I feel that retail investors don't do that enough. And they don't appreciate, or maybe they just don't think that, hey, this could go effectively to zero, right? It doesn't go to zero, but the management team raises capital 10 times and basically went to zero. Hmm. So I think it's just being more thoughtful about that and always consider the alternative. Always ask, this is what I challenge everyone. I always ask myself, should I just buy the S&P? Right. Or you know, it could be the NASDAQ or whatever, FTSE yeah. or whatever, you know, whatever. But should I do that and try to frame it that way? Okay. And what's a resource you'd recommend for our listeners? You know, I think Twitter, actually. I think that this has really evolved as a place and it's, you know, it's, I think it's pretty well utilized, but maybe underutilized. I think that you can create channels of information about your company or about a commodity or, you know, you can pick people you like. I mean, some of the smartest, Ray Dalio, right? I mean, I, I love this guy. I don't know him, but you know, it's so interesting to listen to what he has to say and see his tweets. And so you can kind of select a group of individuals out there that you think are really interesting and then follow that in a way that's easy to access. And I think that what it does is allow ideas and articles and thoughts to come into your Twitter feed 
you may not otherwise know they exist. So I think creating a Twitter feed around investments or around ideas or commodities is really important and a great way of actually thinking about your particular investments. Great advice. Twitter actually is such a, a handy one for, for that. And I know my team and I were constantly sharing tweets into a Slack group about our investment strategy. And we're just constantly, any good tweet, we share it and we look at it. And then if it's a very good tweet, we'll, we'll take a picture of it and then use it in the research and say, here's this guy saying that, and this is interesting. Now let's add something to that. So yeah, a lot of value in that. Last question, what is your number one goal for the next 12 months? You know, I, I, uh, I have some fitness goals. So tell us. Try, trying to do a triathlon. So I've never done one. And, you know, I'm not a strong swimmer. So mm. you know, I really need to kind of get a coach and, and work on that. So, you know, one thing about COVID, which has been nice. I mean, not, not everything is bad. It's just I had to travel as much. And so I've been able to kind of, you know, think about health and have more time to focus on those types of things. Yeah, it's been in Bangkok, basically, every single morning during COVID, I got out at 5 a.m. and went for a walk. And when they closed down the park, you know, the madness that was going on, you know, closing down the park, I just walked around the park and I rode my bicycle and I walked and I just thought, you know, I don't want to get caught up in sitting on a sofa and eating potato chips and, you know, all that. So hats off to you. And I'm sure you'll become a good swimmer over time. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet taken the risk reduction assessment, I challenge you to go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and start building wealth the easy way by reducing risk. As we conclude, Anthony, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Nope. I really appreciate your time and it was great to chat. Yeah, we appreciate it too. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Today, we expanded our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.